How's it going, everyone? And welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we will be reacting once again to a interesting conversation that happened between Patrick Bet David, and he had a conversation on the Flagrant Podcast with Andrew Schultz, and they had a discussion surrounding gun control. First, I'm going to play this clip for you, the thing that we will be reacting to, and then I'm going to break this down piece by piece and give you the reality of some of the things that they're talking about, some of the legal implications, and just some of the legal realities coming from a 2A attorney. Guns. Should a kid at 13 years old own a gun? I personally don't think so, but I, I think, think it's so everyone's too. right. I, wait, that, by the way, you know, you know, Republicans, what I disagree with them on? Here's what I disagree with them on. I own guns. And I'm going to buy a lot of guns. I was in the army. I like guns. I feel safer. First time I bought a gun, I'm living in my house with my wife and I. We had a kid. Range Rover's parked outside. This is 2012. I go to sleep. I wake up. We're living in Encino. I'm thinking we're in a good area. Somebody broke into my range, took everything, took the system. That day, I went and bought a gun. I so again, I want to stop right there. So the first thing that they talk about is, and he asked a question kind of to prompt this conversation is, do you think a 14-year-old should have a gun? I think that's a really interesting way to start this conversation to frame this issue of, you know, younger people having firearms or having access to firearms. Um, of course, I feel like that's kind of a dramatic number. A lot of the legal battles that go on right now and a lot of the discussion or the real world discussion that goes around firearms is the ability of someone who's considered an adult, an 18-year-old to a 20-year-old, one of those individuals in that age range, 18 to 20, someone who's considered an adult, whether or not they should be able to purchase firearms. That's really a lot of the battle that goes on right now. There are a ton of laws which prohibit 18 to 20 year olds from being able to purchase, possess, use certain types of firearms. And that's an issue. And that's a constitutional issue. And it's just also a logical inconsistency because remember, 18-year-olds, 18 to 20-year-olds are legally considered to be adults. 18-year-olds, like you mentioned, can enter the military. They can enter into contracts. They can get married. They can buy vehicles. They can buy homes. They can do all these things that other adults can legally do. But for whatever reason, we treat the Second Amendment as a second class right. And we say 18 to 20 year olds, you are not mature enough. You are not capable enough to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. And again, it's just inconsistent. It's inconsistent with how we treat 18 to 20 year olds in every other regard in our society. And it's even inconsistent when you look at the constitutional and legal implications and the historical implications. When the Second Amendment was ratified, 18 to 20-year-olds were often called to serve in the militia, similar to how they're called right now to serve in the military. 18 to 20-year-olds served in the militia during the Revolutionary War, and they were often actually legally required to bring the firearms that they already had in their possession to service in the militia. So historically, traditionally, in the historical and traditional context and the textual context surrounding what the Second Amendment is intended to mean, we know from historical evidence that 18 to 20-year-olds have always been considered to be part of the people as mentioned in the Second Amendment. Now, again, this is something that's being heavily litigated right now in multiple federal courts and states. Um, there are multiple cases where federal district court judges and circuit court judges, I believe, have actually found that 18 to 20-year-olds do have the right to keep and bear arms. 
They are part of the people, as mentioned in the text of the Second Amendment, and therefore our federal laws, which restrict their ability to purchase and possess certain firearms, is not consistent with the text and history of the Second Amendment, and therefore it's unconstitutional. So again, it's really interesting that he frames it this way. And then he goes on to discuss, you know, the situation that he had where something happened where he believed that for the protection of himself and his family, he needed to go out and purchase a firearm. And I would say, you know, that's not an isolated incident to just him. And I know he knows this. And it's not just isolated to people who are older than 21 years of age. You know, 18 to 20 year olds and other individuals have those similar types of situations. And what we do with our current laws is we say 18 to 20 year olds, we are going to remove you from your ability to exercise your right to keep and bear arms, to protect yourself, protect your families. Because again, these people are getting married, they're going to war, they're entering into contracts, they have homes, all these things. But for whatever reason, we try to treat them different when it comes to the Second Amendment. And to me, that's inconsistent logically, and it's also inconsistent with the text of the Second Amendment. And therefore, any type of restriction of that sort should be struck down. I had to wait four weeks for it, but I went and bought a gun. You're not going to mess with my family. It's that simple, right? But I never bought a gun prior to that, even though I was in the Army. I think this concept about me being able to go buy a gun, same day go home with a gun, and and uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, um, rounds and all this stuff without any kind of training, I think that's not smart. I would much rather require you before you want a gun to do a one-week training, okay? Learn how to use it effectively because I'd much rather have 10 million people that know how to effectively use guns than just letting anybody just go buy the gun and go home, no problem. So again, a lot of things there. And and this is probably one of the sections that they talk the most about. And this is probably the section that I have the most issues with. So first he talks about, he finds issue with someone being able to walk into a gun store and purchase a firearm or ammunition and the same day walk out. Um, You know, under his first amendment right, he has the ability to exercise you know, his right to free speech and say whatever he wants. You know, that's the beautiful thing about our constitution. And this is in no way intended to uh, bash him. I think this is just one of those conversations that happens on a podcast among people. You're brainstorming, you're throwing things out. You're probably having fully flushed out all of your thoughts surrounding some of this stuff. But I think the concept of saying someone does not or should not have the ability to walk into a store, purchase a firearm, and then walk out the same day uh, you know, to me is very, a very weak argument. You know, usually they'll try to frame this as far as like, we need background checks to prevent that. So they're not even really presenting that. I know later in the conversation, he mentions, um, you know, that some states have background checks and some don't. That's not really true that we have federal laws, you know, the 4473 and the federal laws that require, you know, background checks. A lot of these people, these anti-gunners, you know, he's not an anti-gunner, but, you know, people on the left, they push for what they call universal background checks. And the reality is, uh, you know, these people don't understand that we do have background checks. If you walk into a gun store, they perform a background check on you. You fill out that 4473, it runs it through the NIC system and it determines whether or not you're a prohibited person or not. And then, you know, if you're not a prohibited person, then what basis is there really to prevent you from being able to acquire that firearm if you meet all the other requirements and be able to purchase and possess it same day? And so I I find it really interesting that he's framing it this way or he's finding it such a huge issue with this. But I mean, also, some of the things that he presents during this whole conversation are things that have been tried in other states and have not been effective at all to fix the 
problems that he sees. For example, California has a 10-day waiting period. They have a cooling off period. California put the 10-day waiting period in place because they claimed it was in the public's best interest. They believed that it a 10-day waiting period would reduce crimes, would reduce impulsive criminal activity, and so they put that in place. Now, what the statistics have shown is that it has not been effective at anything like that. In fact, there was no real evidence to even prove that any type of criminal conduct in that regard was the result of someone purchasing a firearm and then same day using it for some sort of criminal activity or impulsive activity. There was no evidence to support that, even for them to put it in place in the first place. And then there has been no evidence after the 10-day waiting period being put in place to show that it has had any impacts on crimes or, or violent incidents or firearms incidents. There is there's just no evidence to support that it has actually solved anything. There has been multiple cases that have been filed against the 10-day waiting period. I believe the Sylvester case was one of the ones originally that challenged the California 10-day waiting period. I believe that was originally filed by Firearms Policy Coalition that actually made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court at one point um, because the Ninth Circuit originally reviewed the case and upheld California's 10-day waiting period, but they upheld it using something known as the interest balancing approach, and they used an early version of the two-step approach. And essentially what they said is as long as California puts forward some sort of rationale some rationale at all, some sort of public interest, then we will say they can put in place this type of restriction. And California said, we need this for the public's interest to stop crimes. And so the Ninth Circuit gave them a rubber stamp, stamped this law and said, yep, you know, you put forward a public interest, therefore it's valid. Now, this went to the uh, Supreme Court. It was denied certiorari or, or it was denied review by the Supreme Court and was kicked back down and essentially has sat as precedent. But even in that denial, I believe Justice Thomas wrote a dissent. And that was one of the times that we got the language from Justice Thomas, where he said that no other right like the Second Amendment as treat is treated like a second class right. For some reason, we treat the Second Amendment as a second class right. Now, what has happened since that original challenge to this very thing that he's proposing, the a essentially cooling off period, you know, there has been a new Supreme Court decision, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin decision. And in Bruin, one of the first things they did is they said the two-step approach, the use of intermediate scrutiny of interest balancing is no longer valid. And it was never valid. It should have never been used in Sylvester. It should have never been used to uphold a 10-day waiting period. Instead, the correct type of analysis is text as informed by relevant history and tradition. Now, first, you look at the text of the Second Amendment and you know, if it's conduct or an arm that falls under the text of the Second Amendment, then something like a categorical ban on that type of conduct or that type of arm is clearly invalid under Heller. Blanket bans are never permissible, especially when it's touching on something that's protected, a protected arm or a protected conduct. But even if the government puts forward some sort of regulation and they believe that they can restrict something, they still have to support their restriction using uh, historical supports, historical evidence or historical tradition or analogs that show that at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791, there was a similar type of restriction in place that would justify this modern restriction. Now, when it comes to 
these types of waiting periods to purchase and possess firearms or ammunition, there is no historical text, no historical support or evidence for that type of restriction. At the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment, it would have been absolutely absurd to tell someone that they have to go through a waiting period before they can come into possession of a firearm. You know, that was something that was never conceived of, and that is something that is completely modern, and it is something that has just sprung into, I think, belief first from the state of California. So, again, logically, it doesn't make sense, and then also historically and constitutionally, it is simply just not supported. I'm telling you, that's fine, go take it home, it's fine, you just sit about, go. no, I think we need to test what medication a person's taking on, some of the many states do, I think we need to do a little bit of a background check, many states do. But do you know why the NRA doesn't want to give the... So then he also mentions that you should test to see what drugs people are on and then uh, background checks. Again, like I mentioned, there are federal background checks. It's mandated. You know, he I think he needs to do a little research on, you know, the mix system. Again, not to bash him or anything, but I think this is just, you know, one of those offhanded comments where maybe he just didn't realize or he's just heard a lot of the talking points that we need background checks when a lot of the people on the anti-gun side fail to actually let the public know that we already have background checks in place. To walk into a gun store and purchase a firearm, you have to go through a background check. Now, to actually maybe drug test someone, um, for them to be able to purchase firearms, I feel that's absurd. We would never say that we would drug test someone so that they could vote or drug test someone so they can exercise their right to religion or drug test someone so that they can have due process or air any other fundamental right. We would never say that they need to be drug tested or that they have to have a permit to exercise that right. You know, that would be like saying, you know, Patrick Bet David needs to have a permit to speak like he's speaking here on the podcast, exercise his right to speech. Uh, he would have to go through a test and training requirements. Again, it's inconsistent with how we treat other rights. But for whatever reason, the people sometimes when they talk about gun control and firearms, they treat the Second Amendment as a second class right. And again, we need to be logically consistent. We cannot treat the Second Amendment like this because we don't treat other rights that same way. It would be absolutely absurd to say you need a permit to vote or you need a permit to speak. Now, I know some people might say or might comment, you know, there are certain situations where you need a permit to engage in public speech at certain forums. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's that's not a one to one corollary. He's saying you need a permit to just even purchase a firearm to come in possession of a firearm and that would be almost equivalent in my eyes to saying you just need a permit altogether to engage in any type of speech. That first barrier of entry. We're not talking about a subsection of, you know, exercising that right. We're talking about the very fundamentals of that right. The left this piece to negotiate. You know why? Same exact reason why what's becoming normal in school today. Because if you say yes to this, they're coming for this, this, this. That's their fear. That my, 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 my ambition would be to get everybody in here to learn how to use a gun. One week training, take this course, just like you get a driver's license, yeah. go do it, guys, that's my, for you to go buy a gun at a store and come home, but it's crazy. It's a little weird to me. Mm -hmm. So again, it's talking about training requirements before you can purchase and possess the firearm, going through a week long, you know, training course. He's talking about having some sort of permit, like you have a driver's license. Now I hate when they make this type of, um, comparison because 
being able to drive is not a fundamental right. If you were going to really draw an equivalent, maybe the best equivalent, like I mentioned, would be for someone to try to argue, well, you have to have a certain permit to engage in public speech in certain public, you know, in certain forums, um, you know, in certain, you know, government forums or certain areas, you would have to have a permit. I think that would be a stronger argument if he was going to say something like that. But, you know, drawing, drawing an equivalent to a, a vehicle, um, getting a driver's license, I don't think is equivalent at all. And then he talks about training. And this is, I think, where he has a lot of emphasis on training. Now, don't get me wrong. Training is absolutely important. I cannot emphasize that enough. If you are a law-abiding gun owner, if you are a responsible citizen, if you take the Second Amendment serious, if you take your fundamental right to keep and bear arms for self-defense and to fight uh, tyranny, both foreign and domestic, you need to be training. You need to be shooting your firearms. You need to make sure you're as proficient as you can possibly be and always be striving for more. I try to, I probably shoot more than the average person, but I still absolutely suck at shooting firearms. And I know that because I shoot with very high level uh, shooters. You know, I've been to multiple events where I've got to shoot alongside people like Jerry Michalik, and I've got to shoot alongside with friends like Honest Outlaw, Chris Randall. I've got to shoot alongside of a lot of amazing um, trainers like John Lovell and, and people like that who are way above the skill set I could ever have, but I still strive to be the best I can. I go to different types of training courses. I've done like USCCA training courses at their headquarters, gone through all of their programs. I've done a ton of training. I intend to always do more training at the end of this year. I'm going to go to the Achilles Heel Tactical uh, training here in California, and I plan to do a lot more than that. But again, that's not to say training isn't important. Isn't important. It is very important. But to say that you have to go through some sort of training requirement or go through some sort of government mandated training as a condition precedent to you exercising your right to keep and bear arms, again, is not constitutionally supported. It's not legally supported. And also just logically doesn't make sense. We would never say someone or we would never accept that someone would have to go through a training course, a one week training course, tests. IDs, all these other things to exercise the right to vote. We would consider that, or I'm assuming a lot of people would consider that absolutely taboo when it comes to your right to vote. But for whatever reason, we say, oh, it would be okay when it comes to the Second Amendment. Again, I just don't think that that's appropriate. I think you guys agree that training is always important, but you cannot say that it should be required as a condition precedent to exercising your right. And also giving that authority to the government directly contradicts what the Second Amendment is intended to do. The Second Amendment is intended to protect the people from government overreach. It is telling the government what they cannot do, not what the people can do. The Second Amendment says shall not be infringed. To then say, well, we're going to put in place a government-mandated training course and permit requirement where the government gets to set the standards and tell you when you can exercise your right to keep and bear arms is just not consistent constitutionally or logically at all with what the Second Amendment says. So that's where I find a big issue with this whole conversation. I think he's really off here, and I wish you know we could have this discussion about this, you know, my point of view and maybe his point of view. But I, I think if you really look at it that way, when when you look at the Second Amendment, what its intent is, what the uh, framers intended with the Second Amendment, and then when you really look at what is something like a government-mandated permit and a government-mandated training course, how would that really look like and how would that conflict with the actual text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment? I think he, Patrick would see that you know this type of idea that he has just really isn't as valid as he's saying it is. And you know we've seen 
various types of permits be put in place. We've seen concealed carry permit systems be put in place, like in California. You know, California puts in place their CCW permits and then a lot of the litigation surrounding the concealed carry laws. The government tries to say that if you have more people who are armed, who maybe even have concealed carry permits, if they opened up their concealed carry permits, it would increase crime. But there are zero statistics that show that. If if anything, statistics often show that a law-abiding people carrying firearms concealed um, and having firearms and using them for defensive uses is actually better for the state and is reduced crime. But again, California has permits in place. They have training requirements in place. They have testing requirements in place. They have the firearm safety certificate permitted that you must have before you can purchase firearms. They, again, have you having to qualify with your CCW. And again, that's all state mandated. But have we seen a decrease in crime in states like California or New York or New Jersey or these liberal hubs, these anti-gun hubs that have all of these gun control laws that Patrick is proposing. These are not new things. These are things that some states have put in place. Have we seen them actually have the impact that he's saying they would? No. In fact, most of those states have more crime than any other state or states that are much more permissive when it comes to exercising your right to keep and bear arms. So that's where I would say that I think his argument or his proposed solution as far as gun control, I think that's really where this falls short because we have test cases and test states with millions of people where we've seen that these types of proposed programs absolutely fail. By the way, Republicans, when I say this, like, what are you talking about? You don't have the right to say something like that. I made a video once, the most hated video I ever made, Texas. I go to the store, I buy an M16 with all the rounds. And I leave, I record, it took me 15 minutes to go in, buy an M16, get the rounds, go to my car. I don't think that's okay. So there he talks about, you know, people say you can't say that or in response to him saying some things. He absolutely has the right to say that. He has the right under the First Amendment. He has the right to his opinion to think that you shouldn't be able to walk into a store and buy something like an AR-15. He calls it an M16. I highly doubt he bought an M16 same day, walked in, bought, you know, something like an M16 and walked out. Um I think he probably just bought a civilian AR-15, something like, you know, a Smith & Wesson M&P Sport or something like that. Um, a lot of times they use certain buzzwords or maybe he's just picking up the M16 language because he says he was in the military. Uh, maybe that's where he's getting that from. But, you know, I, he presents it as something absurd that you should be able to walk into a gun store, purchase the firearm same day. But you're also failing to acknowledge that they ran a background check on you. They found out you're not a prohibited person. They pretty much knew everything about him. Um, he wasn't prohibited. So then why would they prevent him from purchasing that firearm, using it, having it for self-defense to protect himself and his family. He's almost advocating for the government putting further restraints on him exercising his fundamental rights. And I would bet that he wouldn't have that same position if it came to something like free speech because he's a very popular podcaster. I bet you he would not be okay with the government, you know, creating a condition president or or further barriers on him exercising his right to speech or to vote or to exercise, do you know, have due process or anything like that. So again, very, very interesting that he's presenting it that way. I think you ought to go get a permit. I think you ought to go get training. And I want my state, if I run a state, I want my state to have more <laughs> trained people knowing how to use guns than other states. Also, the, yeah. the more destructive the gun, 
And again, I have no issue with training, like I mentioned. I think absolutely it would be awesome to live in a state where there's the most trained people possible, where everybody does high-level courses, where they're really trained. Um, I think that type of state or society, you know, an armed society is a polite society. I think that's really what that's referencing, where you would have people that are well-trained. Everybody would know that everybody's well-trained, and I would bet you crimes would go down dramatically. Again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't train. I'm just opposed to training as a condition that you must meet by the government standard before exercising your right. Um, if anything, I think if you're being logical about this or if you're proposing some sort of real-world solution, I don't know. Again, this is something I would have to th think through, think through all the implications. But again, just brainstorming off the top of my head in response to this, you know, maybe a government program where it's not a condition prior to you, but maybe there's some sort of government grants where they give you, you know, a couple hundred dollars here or there every year for if you are someone who owns a firearm or, you know, wants to have training, you know, they give you money to go to high level training. So you can go to someone like John Lovell or go to Achilles Hill Tactical or go to Modern Samurai Project or go to all the JJ Rakaz's courses or Haley Strategic or, you know, any one of these awesome trainers and get trained. It would be awesome if a state had programs like that where they actually supported their concealed carry holders or their constitutional carry holders or their gun owners within their state, encouraged them to go training, helped fund that training so that they had an armed and trained populace. I think that would be awesome. I think states should do that. It would be cool if states like Texas did that. I don't see California ever doing that because California doesn't want people to be armed and trained. So I'm, again, not against training. I'm just against training as a government mandated thing prior to you exercising that right. The more the training, just like with the driver's license. You can't just drive an 18-wheeler. Yeah. That's dangerous if you drive an 18-wheeler. It makes a lot of sense. It's com and probably to flush that further through, the reason why I'm saying that is because when you're talking about certain government-mandated training courses or permits, there are other things that come along with that. It's not as simple as just saying, you just have to do this training course or you just have to do this permit process. Along with those, like we see in California, come heavy time constraints and also insane fees. California, when you look at something like their CCW process, can cost you close to thousands of dollars once you purchase the firearm, once you train with it, once you do all of those things, it could cost you thousands of dollars. And also, you know, when it comes just to the CCW permit for a new application, you're talking eight hours. For the renewal, it's four hours. If you're talking about a single mother, you know, in the lower economic standing, she might not have, you know, a couple thousand dollars to spend to do the permit process, to do the mandated government training so that she can just buy a firearm that she believes she needs to protect herself and maybe her kids. And, you know, that goes for a lot of people. It can go for someone who's elderly. It could go for just the average, you know, single white male. It goes for anybody. There, there are a lot of people who don't have the financial means to do that. Maybe they can only purchase, you know, a very basic Glock, or maybe they can just buy a basic, you know, Smith and Wesson shield, you know, maybe a box of 50 rounds because they believe they need it, you know, for self-defense or maybe something serious is happening. Also, you have to consider that, you know, we've seen a lot of times when it comes to the 10 day waiting period in California, there have been multiple well-reported incidents where there have been females or other individuals who are facing domestic violence issues 
and they want to purchase a firearm to protect themselves. But because of the California 10-day waiting period, they went to go purchase those. They fall in that 10-day waiting period to where they can't come into possession of that firearm. And then something very serious happens to them during that waiting period. The firearm is one of the great equalizers. And there they start to talk about, you know, well, maybe we should have this sliding scale for certain dangerous firearms. Maybe if this firearm is more dangerous than the other, maybe we have this sliding scale of training and permits. But the reality is all firearms, I don't care what you say, a 22, any of these firearms are dangerous. They can be lethal. Um, you know, a lot of people say, you you know, you wouldn't like to get shot by a 22. No one would like to get shot by a 22. Even go just watch, you know, Grantham's videos where he shoots, you know, a ballistic dummy with a 22. You can't say that those aren't lethal. All these types of firearms are lethal and dangerous. That is the utility of them. That is why they are an amazing tool to exercise your fundamental right to self-defense and to also protect yourself against tyranny, foreign and domestic. So to just say like, oh, we are going to determine which ones are more dangerous and what type of requirements we're going to put on them. The issue is who gets to make that determination? The government. Again, we're going to make we're going to leave it up to the state or the federal government to say what type of firearms are more dangerous than the others. Here they keep mentioning M16s. They're really just talking about civilian AR15s. I know they think that they're M16s, but they're just civilian AR15s. And to them, those are so dangerous because they've been vilified by the mainstream media. But in all reality, an AR15 is much less lethal than probably your granddad's hunting rifle 3030 or something like that or 30 out 6 or something like that. You know, some of these, you know, deer hunting rifles the 223556 and AR15 is going to be much less lethal ballistically than one of those hunting rifles but if you were to leave it up to the government they would look at these hunting rifles or these pump shotguns or these woodstock firearms and say well these ones don't look as scary so they're not as dangerous maybe we'll lessen the requirements for those but these scary AR15s or these Firearms with detachable magazines, they love to throw that out there a lot too with detachable magazines. If something has a detachable magazine, obviously it's so much more dangerous. So again, they might be okay with leaving certain things up to the government for their determination, but I don't. I've read almost every single proposed bill that the federal government has put forward in regards to Second Amendment um, gun control. I've read multiple state proposed bills as far as restricting certain firearms because they deem them to be so dangerous. And what I've learned through reading all these different types of bills is that these politicians writing these things have no concept about what these firearms really are, how they actually operate, and they just really don't understand anything about them at all. We saw that recently where there was discussion about pistol braces, I believe in the House Judiciary Committee. And they, you had some politicians who were saying a pistol brace is a bump stock and that a pistol brace makes a firearm fully automatic. When we all know in the two-way world who actually know these things, a pistol brace is by no means a bump stock and a pistol brace does absolutely nothing to change the rate of fire of a firearm. And what they are saying here in this podcast is they want to leave it up to the government who have no concept about firearms at all. They want to leave it up to them to determine what's dangerous, what's not, and what type of restrictions should be put in place on certain firearms. To me, as an American, I am dramatically opposed to that. I cannot 
emphasize that enough, I am so opposed to that type of concept. Common sense. Exactly, because you need a more sophisticated license. So if you want to have an M16, sure, have an M16. If you want a bazooka, have a bazooka. Good luck selling that to them, though. I understand also they're worried about giving up a little bit That's of distance. That's their worry. Yeah. That's yeah. their worry. Yeah. So I understand. Also, there's a lot of money to be made in lobbying for yeah. that. There like, is no question about yeah. that either. I'm not going to sit here. And, and by the way, the more they try to threaten to take guns away, the more gun buyers, you know, gun sellers make money. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's form of a military industrial complex. Yeah. It's another way of making a lot of money. So the last thing they're talking about there is um, some discussion about the NRA, NRA lobbying and things surrounding that, the opposition to these types of ideas. And I would say that type of opposition doesn't come from the NRA. It really comes from just the average law-abiding gun owner. The, I would assume that probably a lot of you watching this video right now who support my channel, support what we do here, you would be opposed to these types of concepts they're putting forward. But also I always find it interesting and the NRA is, is a good and bad thing. Now I know some people are probably automatically hitting the comment section, you know, oh, how could you say the NRA is good? The NRA, you know, was good as far as, you know, it does galvanize a lot of gun owners behind a certain cause for lobbying and stuff. But the NRA has had a ton of issues recently. But I think the main good that the NRA does or the main utility the NRA has right now is they serve as a huge target and shield for these other 2A organizations like FBC, GOA, SAF, uh, other organizations like uh, state organizations like CRPA, um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. They serve the NRA kind of takes all the blunt of the attacks, especially here because like the average casual person who maybe once in a while talks about gun rights and gun control, they are very familiar with the NRA because the NRA is the big elephant in the room. But, you know, anytime someone throws out the NRA like this and is saying the NRA is the one opposing all this, it just shows me that they're not really in touch with gun culture. They're not really in touch with the two-way cause or current two-way litigation because the reality is the NRA doesn't do a whole lot right now. The NRA has actually been a huge problem and has actually been a huge compromiser on a lot of the things that we face. For example, bump stocks. The NRA was the one, according to Donald Trump, the NRA is the one that told Donald Trump to compromise on bump stocks and let the ATF put in place restrictions on bump stocks and treat them, that piece of plastic, as actual machine guns. And because of that, that has then led to the ATF rule on frames and receivers, which then led to the rule, the ATF rule on pistol braces and other types of actions by the ATF as far as uh, agency overreach against force reset triggers and homemade suppressors and solvent traps and all of those other things. And that can all be tied directly back to the NRA. The NRA has been one of the biggest compromisers when it comes to the Second Amendment. Now, you have other organizations like FBC, GOA, and SAF, like I mentioned, and state organizations who are really the ones that are fighting the real battle, who are doing the real lobbying, who are filing the real lawsuits and are really getting the wins. I would say that I would hope that Patrick, if he ever sees this, he really looks into some of these other organizations that are really doing the work. And I think he would find out real quick that the NRA is not what people believes it is. The NRA is overspending. They are bleeding members, millions of members every single year. And that is because they are really not fighting for the right to keep and bear arms anymore. So again, just my quick reactions to this podcast. Like I mentioned, no way is this an attack to against Patrick or Andrew Schultz. I don't, I don't expect them to be super well-educated on all two-way topics like we are here on this channel. I just wanted to insert some of my commentary, some of my thoughts when I 
was sent this and looked at this. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of just give my responses to this because I think this is much more of a cultural discussion and one of those situations where there's this conversation happening about gun control and they're proposing potential ideas, but maybe they didn't fully think through all the implications and really understand or know some of the lawsuits that existed out there or understand that some of these laws are actually already in place at state levels and we've seen absolutely no benefit and actually it's led to more harm. So again, just my two cents. Thank you guys so much for all of your support for the podcast. If you guys like this type of podcast, make sure you're liking, commenting, make sure you subscribe to the channel. Also, make sure you follow me over on the audio side of things, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, where you can listen. Uh, Make sure you're leaving reviews over there because that helps the algorithm over on the podcast side. And also, I thought it'd be good for you guys to have a podcast audio only so you guys could listen if you wanted, like at work or in the car. So again, thank you guys so much for all of your support. If there's something specific you would like me to respond to or address in podcast form, let me know down in the comment section and just let me know other ideas that maybe you would have for a podcast or maybe specific guests that you would love to see on the podcast, either in the two-way world or maybe not in the two-way world. Let me know down below or maybe even just reach out to those people on your own and say, hey, you know, you should consider getting on Arm Scholar's channel and being on this podcast. But regardless, thank you guys so much for all of your support. And as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And don't forget this nation was built by armed scholars and this nation will be maintained by armed scholars.